Hey guys, this is uh, one of those rare occasions where I have a repeat guest. Today I have with me one of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, uh, Dr. David Buss. Hey David, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. It, it's so yeah. good. To... Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, I was just thinking about how long we've known each other. And I, I remember meeting you at the HBS conference in, in London, which was uh, 20 years ago, I believe. Now, I might have met you before that, but I, that's my first memory that of is meeting the, you in person. Well, thank you for remembering because that meeting should be a lot more memorable to me than to you, given our uh, deferring statuses back then. <laughs> I might argue even today. Uh, it was in 2001. It was at uh, UCL, University College London. Right. It was at the HBES meetings that year. And I was giving a talk on, you know, uh, mating issues, specifically information search and in, in, in mate choice, uh, which was very much within my wheelhouse because my doctoral dissertation was on when is it that you've acquired enough information to stop acquiring additional information and commit to a choice. So I looked at yeah. stopping strategies. And in the back of the room sitting were David Buss, Ma uh, Margot Wilson, Martin Daly, Lida Cosmides, and John uh, Tubi and I had come up to you guys and you were all unbelievably gracious and I thought this is unbelievable I'm meeting all of the pioneers of uh, evolutionary psychology how did I do in that that talk do you remember it all was that uh, was I okay I thought, I, uh, yeah I thought you gave a great talk um, <laughs> aren't you gracious so and obviously have uh, had a very illustrious career since then thank you so much I, I wanted to uh Give folks a bit of your bio. It would take several hours to go through the whole details, but let's go through just some highlights. I wrote them down here. So as I said, you're one of the pioneers of EP. EP, of course, is short for evolution psychology. You're currently a professor at, of psychology at University of Texas, Austin, where a lot of my friends from Southern California are moving to. Uh, you, you previously held professorships at Harvard University and the University of Michigan. I've got a great personal story uh, regarding the University of Michigan. We can get into it in a bit. And now this is the part that really shot my testosterone levels really down. Google Scholar citations, 81,524. Your H index as of today is 120. For people who don't know what these numbers are, they're astonishingly high. You were indeed a guest of mine uh, five years ago. Uh, right. And I, I checked the like to dislike ratio. I think we did pretty well, David. 995 likes to 15 dislikes. I'm assuming all 15 dislikes come from women's studies programs. Uh, some of your books, now these, the, the, your edited books are not listed here, but these are your, your author or co-authored books. The one that first introduced me to you, The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating, The Dangerous Passion, Why Jealousy is as Necessary as Love and Sex, Evolutionary Psychology, The New Science of the Mind, The Murderer Next Door, Why the Mind is Designed to Kill, Why Women Have Sex, Understanding Sexual Motivations from Adventure to Revenge, co-authored with Cindy Meston, and today's uh, book that we'll be discussing, your most recent book, uh, When Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of sexual deception, harassment, and assault. So uh, I guess we would start with the, the current book. Give us the big synopsis. We'll drill down and then take it wherever we need to go. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, well, this is just for people. This is a cover of the book in case they don't uh, see it. I thought it was a very nice cover that my publisher 
uh, did. So basically the book is about conflict between the sexes uh, and which has, as uh, you know, Gad, a very long and deep evolutionary roots. I mean, it goes back to sexual reproduction itself, which is estimated to be about one to two billion years ago. So once you have two sexes evolving, then uh, the bottom line is that a strategy that is optimal for one sex is not necessarily optimal for the other sex. And so you have sexual conflict theory, or uh, in technical terms, it's called sexually antagonistic coevolution, where adaptations in one sex inflict costs on the other that create selection pressure for defenses uh, to prevent uh, those costs being incurred. And like predators and prey, there's this co-evolutionary arms race. So not between species as in predators and prey, but rather within species between the sexes. And basically what I do is I, I use this framework, sexual conflict theory as the overarching framework to understand conflict between the sexes. And so I examine conflict between the sexes at, at three stages of the mating process. So on the mating market, is first as people enter the mating market. So things like deception um, about um, you know what mate qualities you might have, and we know that online online uh, dating deception occurs, or feigning a long-term mating strategy when, in the many cases, the men are actually pursuing a short-term mating strategy. Is another example. Uh, then I move to sexual conflict within relationships, and I've studied. Uh, married couples, dating couples, and and there, you know, there there's not a single couple I've ever encountered that has zero conflict. Uh, but I go through the the evolutionary logic of the sorts of conflicts that couples get into over sexuality, over infidelity, over even uh, uh, what I call uh, financial infidelity, where it turns out an astonishingly large number of people have uh, secret bank accounts, secret credit cards. Uh, conceal resources from their partner, conceal where the resources are going. Uh, and so you have sexual infidelity and financial infidelity and a whole host of other sources of conflict. Uh, and then also, uh, as, as you know, couples break up. There's a divorce rate, there's dissolution. Um, and so I talk about the, the causes of those, the conflicts that emerge around the breakup, and then conflict in the aftermath of a breakup. So things like stalking and revenge porn occur. Uh, and then I have, um, uh, so I'm kind of going through the, the, the chapters of the book very quickly as an overview. Sure. Then I have two big chapters on sexual coercion. Um, and these include things like sexual harassment, unwanted sexual attention, all the way to sexual assault. And I have one big chapter on the underlying male psychology of sexual assault and sexual harassment, and then one big chapter on women's evolved defenses, uh, of which there are about um, a dozen or so that would, would surprise people. And some are effective, some are ineffective. We can get into those if, if that's a topic that interests you. Uh, and then the final chapter, I kind of uh, bring it all together. The final chapter is uh, called uh, Mind the Sex Gap. and uh, and, and this is something I think, Gad, yeah, you, you might resonate with. Now, there, to my uh, astonishment, there seems to be a movement of what I call sex difference denialism. The, this, this notion that somehow 
there aren't any sex differences. Uh, and, and it's just um, astonishing to me because the scientific evidence is overwhelming that there are. You know, the sex differences that I talk about in the book, uh, When Men Behave Badly, are among the largest in magnitude and the most replicable in the entire field of psychology. And so uh, how people uh, try to deny these perhaps for ideological reasons or perhaps they worry that if, you, if we admit that women and men differ in any way, that will cause discrimination against women, uh, which of course it doesn't. And what I argue in the book is that uh, in this case, sex difference denialism harms women. Uh, and we can get into the reason for that. So, so, so the last chapter of the book, just to conclude on this, is basically how can we use this information to reduce conflict between the sexes? Got you. Uh, well, of course, you, you are indeed right that the, the, this whole denialism issue is well within my wheelhouse. I mean, the parasitic mind is all about idea pathogens that cause us to engage in disordered thinking. Social constructivism in its radical form would be one such idea pathogen. Biophobia, the fear of using biology to explain some human right. phenomena would be another one. Uh, so, yes, of course. Now, you you hinted at one of the reasons why that form of you know astonishing denialism might happen. If, if, if we don't adhere to the narrative that men and women are indistinguishable other than because of social construction, then, then that might uh, remove our ability to eradicate the, the sexist patriarchal status quo. Therefore, if we need to murder truth in the service of this laudable goal, so be it. Are there other reasons that you could think of, whether it be specifically in, in your area of interest, whether, you know, in mating and sex differences or in other areas, that explain why people are so prone to, as I call in the book, in my book, ostrich parasitic syndrome. What causes this kind of astonishing denialism? Yeah, well, um, I think uh, I think it, it, it actually comes from. So, so this has been a bit of a change in my own in my own thinking. So, uh, I, I think it comes from political ideology, at least in part. Uh, where I, I used to think that those on the right were uh, science deniers. And, and I think that, that they, they are or can be with respect to certain issues. But what I came to realize is that those on the political left uh, are science deniers of a certain sort. That is, they're very selective in what sorts of science they deny. So, for example, those on the ideological left are more likely to, they accept evolutionary theory exactly. in principle, but they chop it off at the neck. So they think, well, oh, it hasn't affected our brains and our minds. Um, and then there's also a science denialism around, around uh, sex differences. And in particular, um, the domain that I study are, are sexual psychology, you know, and, and this is, um, you know, I'm not sure quite how far back this goes, but I think of you know, I'm old enough to have a dim memory of the, the sexual revolution back in the late 60s, early 70s. I was too young, unfortunately, to, uh, to partake in it, partake in that. But but I, I, I observed it and, and read about it. And there, and part of the movement was that that women should be behave sexually just like men. Uh, and what they found is so there's a kind of shift toward promiscuity uh, during that sexual revolution. But what women found is that they, they weren't as comfortable with it as men, that they would have 
you know, casual sexual experiences with strangers and not feel great about it, not feel good about themselves afterwards. So, so, so I could think maybe, but, but, but part of the movement was that somehow women should be identical to men in their sexual psychology. And the fact is they're not. I mean, we know there are very predictable differences that we can get into. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, there's so much to drill down on. Uh, since last we spoke, so I think it was in April 2016, we're now five plus years later. What are some major differences that have taken place as relating to anything EP? Now, that could be greater acceptance of EP in the social sciences, lesser, you know, uh, hysterical reticence within the public engagement against EP. You know, you're, if you're, if you're EP or you're, you're a Nazi, you're a you're patriarchal pig and so on. Uh, new findings that completely ne uh, negate some of the stuff that you and I would have agreed to five years ago. So give us, to the best of your abilities, you know, two, three, four things that when we spoke in April 2016 would, would not have been as true or would have been different from something today. Yeah, well, well, one of them is what we precisely what we've been talking about. I mean, uh, I, you know, when I first started studying sex differences and found how large and replicable they were, and this is now several decades ago, um, I thought, well, surely over time, um, the science will come to people will come to accept these because they're so they're irrefutable from a scientific perspective. Uh, so one of the things that surprised me over the last five years is is this sex difference denialism. Now, I don't think it comes from all quarters. So um, I think it, it maybe is just the extreme or print uh, uh, views that have the sex difference denialism. So like as, as an example, there have been these recent books, and I'm sure you're aware of those, that uh, claim that there are no differences in, in brains between males and females. Right. And I talked to neuroscientists who actually know about the brain, and they, they find it laughable. But the the book that claimed this won some award, like oh, I know that this is the Daphne something from Israel. Is that yeah? The I, I I don't I don't recall the name okay. the name or the title, but um, it, these these books seem to be very popular with uh, people. The the message, you know, it, it turns out we're all we were all wrong. It turns out male and female brains are identical, and uh, you know, and it's just. Uh, it's kind of laughable. And, and, and so I, I guess I just wouldn't have expected the receptivity to that kind of message, which is so against what we know scientifically. So, yeah, so that so this this I think they, they call it neurosexism, right? I mean, using using uh, some uh, anatomical metric where you compare men and women and aha, there is no difference on this particular metric. Therefore, male and female brains are are, are the same. And so I have satirized this as I often do, you know, the tsunami of stupidity by saying we, we are looking for a dog as a, as a pet. And this is why we are, look, we are, we just adopted a giraffe because dogs have four legs and a giraffe <laughs> has four legs. Therefore, I mean, we need to rearrange our house because the dog that we've gotten, the giraffe is simply too tall for our house but since they have a tail they have four legs they have two eyes they're the exact same species i mean does that not exactly cover the level of yeah. thinking of those who argue that there are no anatomical differences between the sexes when it comes to the brain yeah yeah that's that's a good one and that's a that's a hysterical example i like your sense of humor about these things that really adds uh you know and, and kind of makes the point 
you know, in a way that just well, logical argument wouldn't necessarily make the point well, as effectively. Th- that's why satirists are despised historically by despots because despots are a lot more afraid uh, of guys that have big brains and sharp tongues than guys with big muscles. Big muscles, we can deal with them. But the guy who's got the incisive tongue, yeah. that guy is dangerous. We need to shut him up. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's let's get into some of the details. Uh, so you gave us a fantastic synopsis. Uh, I, I wish my students could learn how to come up with such a succinct and clear summary when it comes to you know the elevator story of their of the work. Uh, so if we look at perpetrators, so the, the the part in your book that is that resonates most with the hashtag Me Too movement, the, you know the sexual coercion part and the sexual assault and so on. I think you talk about the dark triad, which we can certainly get into, narcissism, psychopathy, and uh, Machiavellianism. So let's hold on that. We're going to talk about it. But what are some other traits, predictors, that can help us understand who is likely to be uh, a sexual coercer, a sexual offender, a sexual harasser? Do we have a sense beyond the dark triad of who that guy is? Yeah, well, so I think there are general uh, features of male sexual psychology, um, but individual differences occur in each of these. So one is uh, the male desire for sexual variety, so that is for a variety of different sex partners. And this has been this is one of the largest and most replicable sex differences in the domain of sexual psychology, where uh, how many sex partners would you like to have in the next five years? Uh, men want a lot more than women. Uh, uh, how many um, sexual fantasies do you have about different women? Uh, you know, one, one thing I sometimes say is men can walk down a crowded city block and have uh, brief sexual fantasies about half a dozen women in that one sec- uh, block. Uh, women's sexual fantasies tend to be different. Women are more likely to fantasize about a guy they're romantically involved with or would like to become romantically involved with, and they don't, they don't spread it as, as widely, their sexual fantasies. Or even during the course of a single fantasy episode, men do more partner switching during right. the course of their sexual fantasies uh, uh, than women. Um, time elapsed before seeking sexual intercourse. So you meet someone, you're having a positive interaction. How long do you wait before seeking uh, sex? Uh, men prefer to wait a shorter amount of time, women prefer to wait a longer amount of time. How much psychological and emotional investment uh, do you prefer before having, before you're comfortable having sex? Um, you want one of the classic items that assesses this is, as you know, the uh, sociosexual orientation inventory. But one of the items on that, which has always amused me, is uh, sex without love is okay. And it's an attitude statement. Men tend to agree with that. Women tend to disagree with that. But but I always thought that a, a linguist might think, well, it could be interpreted as uh, sex without love uh, is just okay. Or, <laughs> or rather, sex without love, yeah, that's really okay. Right. You know, so it could be interpreted differently. But that's one that also shows a large sex difference where literally men are on one side of the agreement, agree with that, and women are on the disagree uh, side of that, and you for, you 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 forgot to perhaps mention, but of course you're very aware of the the classic studies where you just approach men and women and say, hey, right now we go to my apartment, let's have some some nice sex, and all and 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 the ones who do the approaching are 
you know, physically attractive, whether they be men or women. And yet, you know, most men say, yeah, great. I just hit the lottery. Whereas <laughs> most women, it doesn't matter how good looking the guy is, are unlikely to acquiesce to such a tantalizing offer. Correct. And it's been replicated. Yeah. I think now the first one was yeah. maybe late seventies, right? Uh, yeah, the first uh, study was 1989 89, on it, uh, Clark and Hatfield, uh, and that study found that in that condition, you know, hi, I've been noticing you around, uh, I find you very attractive, would you have sex with me? That study found that 75% of the men said yes to sex and 0% of the women. And subsequent replications and attempts to deal with confounds have, uh, A, well, they've replicated it, but you can get women off the zero percent. So you can get a few percent of women saying yes, if the guy's like really good looking and very charming. Uh, but still then, if the woman is really good looking and really charming, then the men go up to like 83 percent. So uh, so the, the, the sex difference is, is robust. Yeah, it's been replicated. Uh, in half a dozen or so different cultures, including very sexually egalitarian cultures over in Europe, like 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 Denmark, uh, so uh, France, I believe, Germany, uh, and some others. So yeah, it's a very replicable. Sex. So and all these findings, they they converge on this notion that uh, desire for sexual variety, as you can say, is the underlying core of that, uh, and the sexes just differ profoundly on that. And I think that's a, this is one of the causes, uh, combined with the higher sex drive, that men are more um, motivated to seek sex. Um, so that's that's part of it. Now, some more than others. There are individual differences. Of course. Uh, there's another tick in, uh, or or I, some call it a bug, or a, I, it could be a design feature. I think is the male sexual overperception bias. So the classic one is she smiled uh, at me. She wants to have sex with me. Yeah. She smiled at me. That's like, and then she casually touched, brushed against my arm as she passed. That, that's like a no brainer. She absolutely wants to have sex. And, uh, and of course we know that smiles are, I mean, it's really interesting because smiles are inherently ambiguous cues. You know, they could, they could indicate sexual interest or they could be mere friendliness or they could be politeness or they could be nervousness because the guy's a creep. So, uh, but men tend to infer more sexual interest than is there, at least according to women. And, but it's some men are more prone to this sexual overperception bias. So it's not all men are equally susceptible. So men high on narcissism, which you mentioned earlier, is one of the dark triad yeah. traits. And also men who are pursuing a short-term mating strategy, that is men who dispositionally tend to pursue a short-term mating strategy, that combination, these men are especially likely because I need, over and for sexual I, interest. I need to have that perceptual bias in order to instantiate that short-term mating strategy. It's kind of like if, exactly, if yeah. the challenge hypothesis uh, if you challenge me, I need to have a preparatory rise in my testosterone level to be able to meet your challenge. So if I put on my rose-colored perceptual uh, lenses of de detecting every woman who looks at me as you know wanting to have sex with me, that makes perfect sense if I'm seeking short-term mating. I mean, that, it's as simple yes. as that, right? Yeah, it, exactly. And I would add to that, yeah, is... Um is that some men are uh, shy or inhibited about approaching women. And if you literally believe that she is really interested in you, that's going to help 
overcome that shyness or inhibition. It gives you like a, you're saying she's giving me the green light to approach. And one of the examples I use, so, so these men literally do believe that the women are attracted to them. And I use the example in the book of a former senator of the US, the US Senate, uh, Bob Packwood, who uh, wrote, wrote in his journal about like these women, I knew she wanted me because otherwise, why would she be in the copy room just when I was there admiring my bulging biceps and so forth. And anyway, he was accused by 20 different women of sexual harassment um, and uh, ended up resigning before the Senate you know, uh, convicted him of, of, of this. Uh, but it kind of illustrates the point that these men literally believe that the women are attracted to them, right. and that leads to, uh, uh, in in the workplace, sexual harassment. It's one of the contributing factors, anyway. Well, in the the inability to speak each other's language by each other, I mean the, across the sexes, is very interesting in many different domains. So I recently had a chat with a former porn star. Uh, I mean her, her her stage name is Eva Lovia. Uh, and we were talking about, uh, forgive the sort of the vulgar colloquialism, uh, dick pics. And what I was arguing there is that you know the, the reason why men send those pictures to women under the assumption that that's going to arouse them is because they are lacking, in this case, a sex-specific form of theory of mind. Because yeah. I get, I, I'm speaking now as a man, if I get aroused by sexual visual stimuli then it must imply that women are equally prone to be titillated by that visual stimulus that's why i send those pics i mean and that's why you've got all the politicians yeah. who who engage. so it literally is a form of poor mind reading of the other sex that causes yes. a lot of these cross-channel problems right Yes, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I use that example. I go over oh, okay. the research on, on dick pics. And, and that's one of the key points that I make in the book is that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a fascinating issue in that we're, we are stuck in the interior of our own minds and brains, you know. And so we consult our intuitions about our own sexual psychology to infer the sexual psychology of others. And as you point out, it exactly leads to these predictable forms of mind reading errors. And that's why I think that, and, and so the studies show, to get back to the, to the dick pics, so that, that most women find these gross. Right. Um, and men, at least a proportion of men, think that the women are going to be, oh, wow. I'm really that's impressive. That's, yes. You know, <laughs> bring it on. Uh, and, uh, but most women find them gross. A uh, small percentage of women find them attractive, but uh, but most find them gross. And so that's an example. It's a perfect example of a failure at sexual mind reading. I'll give you one example of that from my own research. This was a 2003 paper that I had uh, written at the time with a, one of my former doctoral students where we were looking at uh, sex differences in gift giving. And in one part of the study, we asked men, you know, what are the reasons that you think that women give you gifts? And we asked the same question of women in a, in a romantic context. And the, well, the, the gifts, the gift motives were of two types, either situational. So it's because it's his birthday. That's a situational. Or I'm trying to seduce her. I'm trying to exhibit generosity. I'm, right. Well, it turns out that men thought that the reasons why they give 
gifts for tactical reasons to women. I want to seduce her. I want to have sex with her is the exact same reason that women give gifts to men. So if I receive a gift from a woman, it must be because she wants to have sex with me. Whereas women were very aware of the difference in motive. So women could mind read, men could not. And I argued in the book, I mean, speculatively, because we didn't have data to, to look at, but from an evolutionary perspective, it made sense for men to not ha have evolved the capacity to read those subtle differences because it prepares me to just constantly approach women and so on. Whereas if women had not evolved, so sort of to go with your, your first point about the co-evolution, arms, you know, an arms race between men and women. If every woman were duped by a guy who said, here's a flower, I want to be with you forever, let's go in the back of the shed and have sex. If she couldn't read those signals, then it wouldn't be to her best interest, right? So there are evolutionary pressures in some cases for men and women to have different abilities to engage in theory of mind. Yes, yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And, and for precisely the reason that you allude to, that is, um, in the book, I call it basically um, violation of female choice. You know, that as I regard female choice, and it comes from Darwin's theory of sexual selection, is, is one of the first laws of mating, you know, possibly the first law of mating. And so uh, women have adaptations to preserve freedom of sexual choice and accurate sexual mind reading might indeed be one of them. Uh, however, uh, just to uh, add a perhaps counter example to that, in our studies of um, speed dating, so we did this lab study of speed dating, Karen Perilou, one of my former graduate students, yes. spear, spearheaded this. But one of the interesting things that we found, so we had men and women come into the lab, interact with someone, and then, then rate, uh, is this person interested in you? How interested are you in that person? And then they rotate partners. And so we were able to get actual interactions. And, um, and one of the things that we found, in addition to the male sexual overperception bias, which is particularly true of these narcissistic short-term baiters, is that women tended to underperceive men's sexual interests. So as the guys were saying, oh yes, I'm very sexually interested in her. And we asked the woman, oh, this guy that you just interacted with, is he interested in you sexually? And they would they'd say, no, no, there are no indications of that. And so, uh, and so but I think that there it's the first finding of its sort, and I think there are different interpretations. So one interpretation might be that uh, men are suppressing the overt display of sexual interest, because if you are interested in sex, the worst strategy you can do is be explicit about it. You know, that is, you know, it, you know other tactics like displaying cues to long-term commitment or you find the woman so fascinating and, you know, deeply psychologically interesting are, are much more effective than, you know, explicitly sexual signals. So, so one interpretation is men are suppressing the expression of overt sexuality. And so women are not getting the, the relevant cues. Uh, another, though, might be a female defense of like the, literally not seeing it. So as a defense against unwanted sexual attention. Uh, they just don't see it that it's, you know, and so in, that, in essence, kind of um, ignoring it, uh, except perhaps at a subconscious level. Uh, and, and so 
which of these interpretations or, or alternative ones or which combination is correct, we, we still don't know. The, the former one would fit nicely with one of the three traits in the dark triad, Machiavellianism, right? So that if, if, I, if I were doing what you said in the first explanation, which is to willfully suppress my interest because of some ulterior motive, would that fit as a instantiation of Machiavellianism? Uh, possibly, okay. possibly. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that given maybe especially in the current environment with uh, uh, the Me Too movement and awareness, it might be that um, men are generally um, uh, inhibited about expressing sexual interest uh, more so than in, in previous eras. But whether uh, whether Machiavellians are more likely to suppress than just the average guy? I, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting, interesting question. question. Maybe this might be a final, uh, a, a, finally a time where we actually collaborate on a paper, David. Yeah, that, that, that would be great. <laughs> I would very much like that. Uh, you're, you're very kind. Uh, so, okay. Uh, remember earlier I asked about what, you know, what are some predictors other than the dark, dark triad that might explain, you know, some of the, the creepy guys that engage in this kind of uh, behavior. Could it be something as simple as how I score on my either true objective mate value or my perceived objective mating, uh, my perceived mating value? So my perceived might be is I have low self-confidence, so I don't think I have high mating value, even though the reality is I, I do have mating value. So, for example, someone like Harvey Weinstein, uh, I mean, you might argue he had high mating value in that he's a very, you know, uh, successful, powerful, high status film producer but you might argue that on some other metrics like with all due respect to harvey weinstein he doesn't exude you, you kind of want to wash him right he, he <laughs> right he he doesn't exude yeah. the you know he's not the prototypical right. gorgeous man uh right. he, he's, could, he's not george clooney he's not george clooney exactly <laughs> uh could is that something that you've looked at or would could if we haven't looked at it could that be a predictor of you know if i'm truly the the top dog i don't need to engage in coercive tactics because as we know you know the main thing that establishes how many women i have sexual access to potentially is if i score very high in terms of my mating value if Harvey Weinstein, for whatever reason, scores lowly, he has to resort to these strategies in lieu of pursuing less coercive one. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. I get into um, that in a somewhat different form in the book under what, what's called the mate deprivation hypothesis, okay. uh, which uh, Randy Thornhill and others were uh, the first promulgators of. and. Uh, I think there there might be something to that, but I actually think there's a ton of evidence against it. So um, so I think with respect to Harvey Weinstein, it's a fascinating example, and I talk about that him in the book to some degree. Yeah, from a physical standpoint, women don't find him that desirable, uh, but from a status and power perspective, they are. We know women are attracted to men who are high in status and are very powerful, and as he use one of his tactics is I could make your career or break your career. Uh, and he would say, well, show me your breasts. And the woman would say, no, I don't want to show you. And he said, I can make your career or break your career. Now show me your breasts. Uh, and so he was, uh, he was quite a bit of a, a, a bully. And, uh, and 
this gets back to a, a key point, a, a serial sexual harasser or sexual predator, I would say, because um, I mean, went way beyond sexual harassment in, in many of the cases uh, to sex, sexual predation, sexual, sexual assault. Um, and one of the interesting things with that is that uh, one thing we don't know about his case is how many women gave in. So we've heard from a lot of women who said, no, I refuse. And then he tried to blackball me. Uh, but uh, how many women actually did sleep with him on, under those coercive conditions? We, we don't know. And, and, and we also do know that some, some women in our studies have found this: some women do use sex to get ahead in That's the right. workplace, um, a minority of women, but there are some that do that. Okay, now, in the same way that I asked about the likelihood that someone would be the sexual predator as a, as a function of their, you know, their mating value, is there any research that looks at how women perceive the exact same behavior as a function of the metrics of the person emitting that behavior? So, for example, yes. I, I, I am the... Mm beautiful Italian, it's kind of to be stereotypical, who approaches you and, quote, harasses you. But in Italy, it's called every day. You know, you, as, as you walk down the street, there's someone who's trying to seduce you. That becomes a charming, seductive strategy that actually increases my sense of worth as a woman if it is the glorious, gorgeous Italian guy doing it to me. Whereas the exact same behavior, I don't change a single you know, micro action, if it is done by someone that I find despicable for whatever reason, it then gets coded as a violent sexual assault on the street. Has yes. there been research on that? Yeah, yeah, actually, well, we've done, my lab has done a bit of research on it. And uh, I report it in greater detail in my previous book, The Evolution of Desire, which you were kind enough to mention. But yeah, we what we did is we had, we kept the act the same. So uh, made unwanted sexual advances or persisted in sexual advances even after you said no. And we varied. Is this guy a, a janitor? Is he uh, a professor? Is he a rock star? Is he a successful businessman and so forth? And yet, and we found women, how, we asked how, how harassing would this be and how upset would you be? And what we found is that it indeed varied uh, in part with the social status of, of the man. Amazing. So the same act by, by the janitor is not warmly received, uh, you know, so. And is um, it social status that's the key, uh, you know, driver of that effect? Or could it be whether I am physically very hands? I mean, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, I would expect yeah. social status to be greater. But did we, do other variables serve as no. moderators, including yeah. my physical attractiveness? Yeah, I would expect that they would, uh, but we didn't look at physical attractiveness okay. in, the, in that particular study. But uh, that's a prediction I would make as well. Yeah, got you. Uh, do you worry, David, that because you mentioned Randy Thornhill, uh, whom we both know very well. He, of course, he wrote uh, a book with, uh, if I remember, Palmer in the early 2000s on the sort of evolutionary roots of uh, rape. And I remember I had been invited uh, by uh, by the gang at University of New Mexico, uh, including Jeffrey Miller and Gengistead and uh, all those guys. And I had gone out, uh, you know, hanging out with Randy Thornhill and I had asked him, 
this was 2006, I think it had been maybe five, six years since his book had come out. And I said, so, so how, you know, what, what are some of the worst stories that you, that you can recount in terms of the reception that you had gotten, uh, in writing that book? And he said, well, at one point I had to have sort of police escort, you know, if I remember his, the details of what he had responded, because people were so irate again, falsely thinking that if you explain a phenomenon, you're condoning it and uh, justifying it. Do you worry for similar reasons that people will come after you? Oh, so you're offering a fancy schmancy evolutionary explanation for men's uh, poor behaviors. Uh, Clearly you are justifying and condoning it. Yeah, well, I think um, um, at this point, I'm not, it it did concern me as I was writing the book, but um, I think that, um, that the way I handled it and people who actually read the book that they, they won't feel that way. Cause I, I do take pains to point out precisely the, the fallacious reasoning that you, that you mentioned, that is, that is in order to eliminate these bad behaviors like sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual coercion, we have to understand the causes. Uh, and but identifying the causes, the, the analogy that I give is if you're a cancer researcher, that do, doesn't mean you think cancer is a good thing and we want to have more. I give the know. exact same analogy. <laughs> OK, so well, maybe maybe I heard you and I, I, uh, I, I, I actually cite someone else. I, I can't remember who it was, maybe Shackelford, who other people have used that example. But but yeah, no. So, you, you know, obviously you. It, explaining and identifying the causes of the bad behavior does not in any way excuse it or justify it. Uh, it, it, But in fact, just the opposite, it provides the ammunition for eliminating it, just like understanding the causes of cancer will lead to and have led to some interventions to uh, mitigate it. So that that example is one of many attacks that detractors of EP will use against EP. Oh, you're trying to condone it. You're trying to justify it. Biological determinism. I mean, in one of my previous books, uh, you know, I list a whole bunch of these. And and since I have updated the list, I know that you've also looked at that. So, and I asked you earlier in the last five years, have things changed in EP? So if we look at all of the classic, let's pick the top 10 cognitive and emotional obstacles as to why people, you know, have that visceral disgust of EP. Have we made any headway, do you think? Or yeah. is it? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I think we have. I mean, it, it's it's hard to tell trends, but um, I think that part of what's helped, I mean, part of the initial reaction is just it's so novel, you know, as you know, and well, I've argued, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I think evolutionary psychology is actually a scientific revolution. It is. And I think I we're agree. In, the, in the midst of it. And I think it's the most important scientific revolution, at least in the field of psychology, or, or I would say the all of social sciences. Um, and, and this may sound grandiose, but my view is any field that deals with human behavior has to deal with evolved psychology that in part causes that behavior. And so even fields like sociology or you know, in your domain, in, in the business school, consumer research, uh, consumer research, organizational behavior, uh, all these things have as their foundation our evolved psychology. And so we have to understand that. So, um, uh, so, so I think that, uh, I think there's been progress. Um, I think there are 
for example, textbooks in the field of psychology that do acknowledge and recognize uh, the findings, the sex, some of the sex differences. I think also there's been an explosion of research on uh, cooperation and morality. And I think maybe that has helped because it's like it used to be the stereotype was, oh, EP just focuses on sex and violence. They're obsessed right. with sex and violence. And, uh, but in fact, there's been an explosion of research on cooperation uh, and morality. And so, uh, however, I would defend the focus on sex uh, because in sexually reproducing species, everything has to go through mating. Right. Uh, you know, and, and ultimately, and so a lot of phenomena that even might seem distantly related um, are in fact tributary to mating and sexuality. So things that we've talked about like, like status, uh, but also other things like coalitional psychology, you know, uh, through different uh, links are related to mating. And so I think it's not a bad thing that there has been a lot of focus on sexuality and mating because it's so important. If we were an asexual species, we wouldn't have to worry about it. We'd focus on other things, but we're a sexually reproducing species. But do you think, I, I want to come back to all the list of detractors in a second, but since, you, you, since you're defending the, the, the pension to focus on human mating, you, you're sort of uh, uh, preempting my, one of my next line of questions. Okay. So in, in my next book that I'm currently working on, one of the chapters I talk about, uh, you know, variety seeking. But variety seeking could be sexual variety seeking in the a la EP sense. It could be uh, tourism destination variety seeking. It could be food variety seeking. And one of the areas that I focus on as an instantiation of variety seeking is intellectual variety seeking. Mm. And I argue that, uh, so for example, I am a big intellectual buffet guy. In other words, and maybe, not maybe, I think almost guaranteed to the detriment of my academic metrics. I mean, not that I give too much damn about it at this point, but, uh, you know, if you were advising your graduate students, you'd say, focus on one area and go very deep and through economies of scale, pump out a paper that's plus epsilon every year. And that's the way that you're going to kind of be recognized as having planted a flag somewhere. Whereas I'm someone who publishes in medicine on uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy while being housed in the business school. Because if I'm interested in a phenomenon, if, if David Buss comes to me and says, hey, do you want to work on this GAD? And if it sufficiently titillates my uh, curiosity, I'm in uh, to a fault without caring about strategizing. And so I'm a grand intellectual variety seeker. Whereas and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you would, I think, be prototypically in the other range, which is, yes, of course, you've studied a million different instantiations within mating, but, you know, you are the world foremost guy in mating. Do you ever, is that a tension for you? If you had to look back mm. at your career, would you change and buffet from more intellectual landscapes? Or, or any, anywhere you want to take this question, take it away. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting question, Gad. Um, uh, I guess I, I would say, um, uh, well, first of all, I think both, both types of scientists are needed. Okay, we need people who have these broad uh, views because you, you can link different topics that otherwise wouldn't be linked. Conciliates, conciliates. Yeah, yeah, and, and so... Uh, uh, so I think we need both both types. Um, I, I guess I would say I'm kind of a cross um, uh, between those two types. So yes, I've studied mating in depth more than any other thing, um, but I've also studied 
homicide, uh, which turns out to be related to mating, <laughs> motives for murder. Uh, I'm currently studying status, the underlying psychology of status. But again, that's uh, linked to mating in various interesting ways, but is, is somewhat different. Um, and, uh, and, and so uh, I guess what I would say is kind of getting back to an earlier point of mine that uh, you can run, but you can't hide from mating. So that it's even, I even, part of the reason I wanted to study homicide, why people kill, is to branch out, move away from mating domain. But what I found is that motives for murder are heavily mating related, uh, directly or, or indirectly. So, so for example, in the indirectly, uh, as you know, men and Martin Margo and uh, um, Mar Martin and Margo, Daly and Wilson have documented this, men kill over status. They kill if they're publicly humiliated. Well, you may think that has nothing to do with mating. Well, in fact, it does. Our, our status and reputation, if that plummets, then you become invisible to women. And so it's, it's not, and, and so the, the point that I'm making is that um, one of the things that fascinates, so I, I'm a fairly broad-minded um, intellectual professor as well, Perhaps not, I don't, I've never studied Munchausen by proxy, uh, or maybe some of the other things that you've studied. Uh, but but I, I guess what I, I do have is that core base, the mating base, and all the topics that I've studied turn out to be also related to it in one way or another, such as murder and status. Yeah, by the way, I mean, you mentioned earlier, I mean, just now, uh, Daly and Wilson, and I think we discussed this the last time you were on my show, it was their book, Homicide, that got me into EP because it was in a first yeah. semester doctoral course with an, uh, it was an advanced social psychology course. So I was trained, my, my doctoral supervisor is a mathematical and cognitive psychologist by the name of Jay Russo. Actually, his PhD is from University mm -hmm. of Michigan in psychology. And uh, he had suggested that I take a course uh, in advanced social psychology. So this was not an EP course. It was 1990 at the start of really EP. Mm -hmm. And about halfway through the course, the, the professor's name was uh, Professor Dennis Regan. He assigned uh -huh. the book Homicide by oh. Daly and Wilson. And my mind was blown. Yeah. And then I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll apply this framework in studying consumer psychology. And that's how it, it was made. And I think I had asked you this last time around, but maybe it's worth repeating. What was your evolutionary bug moment, your epiphany? It was were you, was it you were in a bookstore and you saw some book? Was that was that? Well, it? well, it, it, there was a series, but it actually started as an undergraduate when I uh, read um, uh, a book that no one knows about these days called The Imperial Animal. Uh, Desmond by, Morris? No, no, it was a uh, Lionel Tiger and Lionel Robin Tiger. Fox. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Nineteen seventy-one, and I read that as an undergraduate, and it it was. I mean, if you go and read it now, it's kind of it's it's quite outdated and it's kind of uh, group selectiony in a way that we wouldn't uh, most people today wouldn't buy into. But um, but it really intrigued me, and so I wrote an undergraduate paper. It was a small seminar class where where we had to write a term paper, and I wrote my term paper was called Dominance Slash Access to Women, where I talked about. The, the, the only reason that men want to gain status is, is to get sexual access to women. And I brought in, you know, the primatological evidence and, you know, other things. So, so it was really uh, my first ex exposure, even before that, as an undergraduate, when I was a freshman, to evolutionary theory in a geology class. And I just thought, whoa, um, I, it never even had occurred to me, given my limited mind and limited education, 
that there existed theories that could explain the origins of things. Right. And that, that just absolutely fascinated me. And so I was very interested in astronomy and in particular cosmology, the origins and evolution of the universe. And then with our species, the origins and evolution of humans and in particular our evolved psychology. So, so it kind of goes way back. And, and then, yes, yeah, so then I, then I uh, found a, uh, in a used bookstore, I found a, a, a collection of articles on sexual selection theory that had Trevor's chapter in it. I read Don Simon's of course. 1979, The Evolution of Human Sexuality. I read uh, George Williams had a book called Sex and Evolution. And so I started, and, and talk about like a broad-minded scholar. Most psychologists, as you know, don't know anything about evolutionary theory. But, um, and there, there, there's not a single, to get a, a BA or a BS or a PhD in, in, at least in, I don't know if this is true in Canada, but in America, you don't need to take a single course in evolutionary biology. Amazing. And so, and so people, all of these professors have, um, most of them, unless they get it on their own, right. they have little or no knowledge of what the actual technical details are of evolutionary theory. And what's incredible is if you were, quote, an animal behaviorist of any kind, or a zoologist, or a primatologist, so for every other species, 1,999,999, you would never study the behavior of the mating strategies of the salamander without invoking evolutionary thinking. But right. somehow there's this one species that is com you could completely study. You could be called Dr. So-and-so without ever <laughs> invoking biology. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I'll actually tell you a story about that, an anecdote. Now, because I didn't you, a part of your, one of your degrees is from Cornell, is that? Two of my degrees that, are from Cornell. Two, okay, so, so this is a story. Uh, back in 1990, so this is how long ago this was, I got invited to Cornell to the psych department to give a talk. And so it was one of the first talks I gave on the 37 culture study. So uh, can I, can uh, so I just, I, uh, let me just fill in for people who don't, well, rather than let me fill in, yeah. why don't you tell us what that study is? Because it is of course the classic study in the field. Go ahead. Tell us that well, before you go on with the anecdote. Okay. So, well, this was a study that um, uh, as I was reading in the evolutionary literature, Robert Trivers, Don Simons, George Williams, there were clear predictions, you know, about sex differences in mate preferences that these theories made and uh and i thought well i could i could actually test these you know it's it's rare in psychology that you actually have a theory that's testable in a, in a co cogent way so so i started dabbling in it and tested them on a sample of uh, cambridge individuals i was at harvard at the time i found the sex differences which i was delighted by but i thought well no one's going to believe these uh, you know, if the evolutionary hypotheses are correct, you have to document these across cultures. And so that's what launched the 37 culture study, where over the course of five years, I enlisted collaborators from around the world. And we eventually had over 10,000 individuals, 37 different cultures, um, and, uh, and, and found lo and behold, that these sex differences were in fact, um, universal as precisely as predicted. One anecdote on that study is that before I did this study, I went around to different professors and asked them to make predictions. I say, look, I found these sex differences in Cambridge. Uh, do you think they're going to be uh, universal or, or just true in capitalist cultures? And almost every single one said, no, these are just products of capitalism. 
Western culture. You won't find them elsewhere. The only exceptions were people like Don Simons who expected them to be universal. Uh, but but my mistake was I didn't get people to s sign their names to the predictions. Ah. So because after I published the study, then people say, "Oh, I could have told you that." You know, the, that, the that's the fourth. Bias. That's the fourth stage of Haldane, right? It's uh, remember the 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 stages yeah. before you accept something. Oh, this is garbage. This is perverse. This is bullshit. Oh, I always said so. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so, so go back uh, to the Cornell story. Okay, so back to the Cornell story. So. So here I, I give my, my lecture, um, which is 50 minutes, and then there's the Q&A. Uh, and the second I stop, a professor there, and, and I don't know if you knew her when you were at Cornell, um, what is her name? Sandy Bam. Uh, oh, the is, wife uh, of Daryl Bam. Yeah, the wife of Daryl yeah, Bam. Yeah, the yeah. Chief, her whole thing was a sexual script theory where somehow culture gives you the script and that's said all. Anyway, she jumped up from her chair and launched into this monologue about how it was all wrong and how evolution had nothing to do with this. And, uh, and so she, uh, you know, after like a few minutes of this uh, tirade, I kind of cleared my throat to start to answer. And she said, you've been talking for 50 minutes. It's my turn now. And then continued to launch into this monologue. But anyway, she finally stopped. And so, and so I said precisely the point that you were uh, alluding to. I said, so you have these, this theory that explains sex differences in thousands and thousands of species, including sex role reverse species. Exactly. And then, and, and then we get to humans and we find the same sex differences and you wanna invoke an entirely different explanation for the human case compared to the thousands of other species. And she said, yes. And so I said, at that, that point, I, I think we're probably not gonna make too much progress Amazing. in uh, furthering this discussion. Well, I mean, at several points today, you spoke about something that I'm really trying to popularize. And I know that, you know, independently, I've been using this epistemological tool, but you've also written about it. Your student, David Schmidt, has written about it. Of course, the granddaddy, uh, Charles Darwin, did it without calling it a name, where you bring in multiple lines of evidence across time, across yeah. culture, across disciplines, across frameworks, uh, nomological networks of cumulative evidence, which then allows me to drown your endless, you know, uh, hysterical positions with data, right? So I want to prove to you that toy preferences have a sex specificity. I don't have to scream louder than you. I can bring you data from across cultures, from across time periods, from across species, right? right. Vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys. I can bring you <laughs> yeah. data from ancient Greece. I can bring you data from cultures that couldn't be any more different than us. I could bring you data from clinical populations where little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia and therefore have masculinized behaviors will exhibit yeah. toy preferences that are reversed. So that, which leads me, I'm, I'm gonna close the loop on when I talked about earlier about the detractors of EP. Of all of the different attacks on EP, they all piss me off, but the one that pisses me off the most is the one that it's just so storytelling, that it's yeah. just, it's unfalsifiable. And I always yeah. argue that if you are a good evolutionist, the threshold of evidence that you work under is actually yeah. infinitely higher than all the other sciences, but apparently we just kind of sip cognac, yeah. smoke a pipe, and just pontificate <laughs> with post hoc speculation. Does yeah. that piss you off as well? I'm sure it does. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course it does. Uh, 
you know, and um, I mean, this is a, a meme that Steve Jay Gould created a long time ago. And unfortunately, for people who wanted to track, it's, it's an easy way. Oh, I don't even have to pay attention to EP. Um, it's just a bunch of just so stories. So but um, but it would be kind of astonishing if um, we were able to publish in the top journals in the field and they would say, oh, yeah, it's a just a just story. Let's publish it in science and nature and psychological review and you know, uh, whatever. So, um, you know, that we know that's not true. Having said that, though, I would say that there are, uh, as you know, differences in the quality of evolutionary of psych research, like, like any field, there are good practitioners and bad practitioners. And I wish the bad practitioners would get out so that we just had good practitioners, but, uh, in every field there, there's that whole range. Do you think that so I, I can't remember, well, I think it was Richard Dawkins, yeah, it was Richard Dawkins who talked about middle world, right? So the idea is that our brains have evolved to understand phenomena at a, on a particular scale. So that when you, yeah. when you bring me to the electronic, uh, you know, nano world, I, I don't know what the hell you're talking about with string theory. I don't know. I'm lost. If you bring me up to cosmological scale, you know, our brains, yours and mine and everybody else that's ever been, has ever existed, doesn't really know how to think about things at the cosmo at that cosmological level. In the same way that an ant doesn't recognize that, you know, the Eiffel Tower exists, right? It's at a completely different scale, that it, yeah. it's reality. So might it be the case that these detractors of EP are succumbing to certain cognitive and emotional biases or obstacles precisely because our brain has not evolved to understand evolution well. We yes. have these built-in mechanisms against EP. Yeah, 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 I, I agree exactly. That, uh, and I, I, I have written a bit about that, that our evolved psychology interferes with our ability to understand our evolved psychology. <laughs> okay, you <know>? very nice. <laughs> You know, so and and there there are those. So there's the the time scale issue. So exactly. the point that Dawkins makes is is the one that you made is that is that we evolved to solve adaptive problems on shorter time scales. Uh, so in the here and now, is this uh, parasite or predator or infectious disease coming my way? Is this an attractive mate I want to try to attract right now? Yeah. So Dawkins makes the point that we evolved to solve adaptive problems on short time scales, in, in, in seconds, minutes, hours, occasionally days or years. We didn't evolve to understand causal processes that occur in small increments over thousands or millions of years. It's just irrelevant to the problems that we need to solve. And so our evolved psychology, in fact, interferes with our ability to understand our evolved psychology. But there's actually another way in which it does so, I think, and I've written a bit about this, and that's coalitional psychology. So we have a very powerful, evolved coalitional psychology that is our group, and then other groups are enemy groups. And unfortunately, this plays out in academia uh, as well, as well as in the political, political realm, as well as in small group warfare. And so uh, if your group is, say, let's say, opposed to applying evolutionary theory to the human mind, then you out of tribal loyalty, you're gonna, your coalitional psychologist is gonna say, I'm gonna align myself with my group and not go with the scientific evidence. So, uh, so I, I don't think we evolved to be dispassionate scientists. Right. And it, it, it takes training and 
years of um, trying to overcome some of our evolved psychology to get to the point where we can become dispassionate scientists and try to understand the human mind. Well, and, and I guess based on what you're saying, I, I wonder if I could link it to the following. So I don't know if you know the the, the, the book, which I actually cite in The Parasitic Mind by Sperber and uh, uh, Mercier uh, yeah. on the theory of our argumentation, right? That that we, you know, we, we, we evolved to kind of defend our position. So it kind of fits very nicely with what you're saying, right? So so yeah. the, the the requirement that scientists be objective and possess epistemic humility and so on, in a sense, goes against the desire <laughs> for me to defend my position, irrespective of whether new incoming evidence falsifies it. So in yeah. a sense, the scientific method forces me to kind of rise above my innate, otherwise biases, right? Yeah, 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 indeed. And and that's why, I mean, I think that... Um... You know, just to give like one example of that, uh, there's, as you know, uh, social role theory, which is kind of a blank oh, slate yes. oh, theory yes. that um, attempts to explain existing sex differences. But one good attribute of that theory is that it does make a falsifiable prediction, namely that in cultures, sexually egalitarian cultures, the sex differences should diminish or disappear. And what my former student, David Schmidt, who you mentioned earlier, uh, and now many others have found uh, that, in fact, in sexually egalitarian cultures, many of the sex differences are up. larger. <laughs> uh, so, so I've occasionally sent these to one of the prominent social role theorists. I think I know which one. With, with, the, with the suggestion, like, maybe you want to uh, change your mind or, or back off on your claims, but no, zero, zero changing of minds. And I'm, I'm sure that those people, and it's been said, like, you know, that, Science advances one death at a time. That if people go to their death, still clinging to the to the view which is now falsified. So, got you. A couple of more questions, if I can, if you could oblige me. Is, do we still have a bit sure. of time? Okay. Yes. So, uh, on a, on a different note, so you wear many hats. You you're obviously a ridiculously prolific researcher. As a matter of fact, I think it is correct to say that the 50 top psychologists alive today, if not in the 20th century century or something I, I know you're too modest but am i am i on the right track something of, to that effect yeah yeah so i've been cited in a couple of lists of yeah one, one of them is the the 50 most influential all oh, right uh, exactly. living psychologists so how they how they operationalize that i'm not exactly sure but oh. but i'm happy to be in that group. <laughs> well they, <laughs> when you certainly are deserving of it okay so you've got your scientist hat you've got your professor's hat you, you have another hat, which, in my view, regrettably, too few other professors do, which is exactly what we're doing here. You're, 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 you're putting out material for public engagement beyond yes. the, the few rarefied, highfalutin, you know, anointed ones that we navigate amongst in, as, a, as professors, which, of course, that's something that is very much in my wheelhouse, because while, yes, I love to publish peer-reviewed papers, I also get very excited when I post something and 100,000 people view it, not because I'm a narcissist, but because I'm in the business of creating knowledge and disseminating knowledge. I mean, if, exactly. if evolution is a two-step process, survive and mate, well, academia should be a two-step process, create knowledge and spread it. If I only yes. spread it to eight other people who read it in some peer-reviewed journal, I'm certainly failing at the, the, the reproduction of my memes, if you'd like. Right? Yeah. yeah, and I would add to that that um, I think that we have a moral or ethical obligation to disseminate it. So in my case, 
I'm my salary is in part supported by public taxpayers' money, and you know, in the state of Texas, and then through federal funding in part as well. And so, why should only the 75 people who subscribe to a particular journal be the beneficiaries of the scientific knowledge we Bingo. create? We have it should we have a moral obligation to disseminate the scientific knowledge to the taxpayers and to the general public. Okay, so that's that's looking at that issue from a sort of altruistic uh, perspective, and that's great, that's very noble. But from your pers- from your forgive the term, from your selfish perspective, do you yeah. enjoy each of these different hats equally, or or yeah. as for example, your career has progressed, has the amount of enjoyment of one of the hats been, become? So for, let me first answer it for me, yeah. and then I'll 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 okay. ask you to answer the same thing today with the velocity at which I can spread knowledge, I've become a lot, I still love when I go in, I'm a passionate guy, so I can go up in class in front of 10 people and I will be like a wide-eyed child and I'll be excited and animated and so on. But in a world of fixed energy and fixed time, sometimes teaching you know, 22 students an MBA class seems to be, a greater imposition than me doing this chat with you, which hopefully will be watched by 80,000 people because life is right. short. So right. where are you in, as you navigate through all these different pulls? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I enjoy all of them. Uh, and I and, and as you mentioned, I mean, time and energy are finite and we have to allocate, we have to make allocation decisions all the time. But I, but I enjoy it uh, a lot. I enjoy the the public aspects of it a lot. So, um, and they kind of feed on each other. So a lot of people found out about my work, not through the scientific journal. A lot of professors found out about my work by reading The Evolution of Desire, for example, or or hopefully my new book, When Men Behave Badly, uh, that will reach a a wider audience. And so, so like, let's say you, if you're a sociologist or you're a psychologist who studies memory or something like that, you're not going to read the journals I publish in uh, for the most part, but, but you might pick up a book and say, oh, this topic, human mating or conflict between the sexes, that really interests me. And so a lot of professors have contacted me, not because they read the scientific journals, but because they read the books or, or heard me on a podcast or saw me on TV or whatever. And so... Uh, so, so I enjoy all aspects of it. I, I mean, I guess if, um, you know, uh, but, but in terms of uh, time taken away, uh, the one thing that I enjoy less now, although I'm not sure I ever enjoyed it, is dealing with reviewers and the revision process in scientific journals. Yes. Because that, that it's a tedious process, uh, which is often results in no, in no incremental improvement in the quality of the paper. Sometimes it does, but often it doesn't, and it's a big time waste. So I enjoy that aspect of publishing less, and probably book book writing and doing podcasting and TV more gotcha. over time. I would say two more questions, and then I'll let you go to your other pursuits. Uh, no. Number one, is there anything? And I'm I'm asking this today because I, for, from a selfish perspective, because in in my forthcoming book. I have a chapter on sort of the minimize, you know, the book is about really a a recipe for the good life. Uh, Although hopefully it won't be too self-helpish. It'll be really rooted in 
certainly personal anecdotes and, and the science behind it. One of the chapters is sort of, if you could live your life uh, void of too many serious regrets, then you've certainly lived a successful life. And actually, one of my former professors at Cornell, Tom Gilovich, uh, is the guy who wrote the seminal books on the psychology mm. of regret, uh, the, the regret of action versus the regret of inaction. And most mm. people regret a lot more in inaction. You know, I, I, I never went and became the dancer. I became the accountant because my dad told me to be, and I, I hate accounting. Uh, so if I were to ask you this question, and I say I'm asking it from a selfish perspective because I love to collect these stories that maybe some of them will make it into the book. Uh, what would be, if I asked you right here, right now, what are your greatest sources of regret? What would you answer? Oh, boy. Um, you know, at a professional level? Either professional or personal. The one that keeps you up at night, uh, you know, gnawing at you yeah. because you yeah. wish you... Well, the well, there weren't any of those. Uh, so, okay, good. Um, so I've, uh, I have... Um, I, I don't really have any regrets professionally. I mean, I've been very fortunate in that my job allows me to the freedom to pursue whatever topics I want. So like no one, no one in graduate school was studying mating. No one, none of my professors did. No one was evolutionary, but I have the freedom to pursue these topics. Or if I'm interested in why people murder each other, I can go study that or status. And so I feel very fortunate in having the freedom to do that. And so I don't really have any professional regrets. Um, you know, uh, I, I do think evolutionary psychology is a scientific revolution that I that I wish, and maybe this is a regret, uh, was happening a lot more quickly right. than it than it is, and so that's something. But that's not uh, that's not due to anything. If if anything, you've you've done to to not have that happen, so you can't really yeah. regret it on a personal level. Right, right. So at a at a personal level, um, I regret. Uh, I, I I made a. Um, a bad mating mistake once. Oh. Uh, so uh, the mating so, the mating guru failed at yeah, mating. Yeah. Well, this is before I this is I made it before I started studying mating, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've never made it again since then. But yeah, my first marriage uh, I think was was a mistake at one level, but I don't regret it because it actually resulted in two children who I loved very dearly. And so at some uh, from an evolutionary perspective. There's, there's no regrets. It just turned out to be a relationship that, that uh, de imploded over time. Got and, it. And, okay, and last. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but as you said, uh, you, you've gotten wonderful children from it. So, I mean, you're well on your way to having lived a great life. You have no other regrets. Great job. Uh, last question. Uh, more than a question, it's an opportunity. Uh, are there any other projects that you're currently working on that you'd love to You'd like to use this forum to promote a, a next book that you're thinking about, other papers, other projects, anything else. This is your time to promote away beyond this current great book. Well, well, these are these are, as you know, books are long term projects. So but the, the, the two two of the topics I'm currently working on and may eventually publish books on, but probably scientific articles in the meantime. One is we've already mentioned is the psychology of status, right. status and reputation. And that, I think, is a topic that. It's starting to get more attention, but there's a lot that we don't know. And so I've published a couple articles uh, with uh, Pat Durkee, one of my current graduate students, on that. And I think that's a, it's a really important and understudied topic. Uh, and then the other is um, maybe not as grand in scope, but uh, the study of sexual morality. Uh, and the idea there is that 
there's been, as you know, an explosion of research and, and theories of morality in humans, the evolution of morality, but uh, almost none of them deal with sexual morality. But if you go back to uh, the, the first written law, so the law of uh, Hammurabi, of course. Uh, you go to uh, every major religion, every uh, legal system, wherever they're, uh, they all have um, dictates about who can have sex with whom, who can have sex with whom, under what conditions you can and can't have sex with whom, who can you marry, who you can't marry, etc. And so sexuality may permeate human morality, but our current theories of morality have tended to ignore them. Right. You know, they view morality as, as all about cooperation, and, and that may be true as well, but there's some specificity to our sexual morality that I think really uh, requires exploration. And so we're right now doing cross-cultural studies. This is with uh, Kelly Asau, a former graduate student, and Courtney Crosby, a current graduate student. We're exploring these across cultures. So I think there'll be some cool stuff coming out. I'm working with a evolutionary psychologist who used to be a former student of Tubi and Cosmides on also cross-cultural aspects of morality. So should we, we should talk about that in the, okay, uh, cool. privately. Uh, you mentioned Hammurabi before I, I closed today's chat. Uh, in The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, my first book, I have a section in the first chapter where I take sp the, s some of the specific edicts from Hammurabi's code and I demonstrate their evolutionary roots. So you might oh, cool. want to go back and check that out. It is such a pleasure and honor to have you with me. Uh, I look forward to the three-peat the next time that you'll come on the show. <laughs> a real okay. pleasure. Stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate okay. it. Thank you, Gab. It's wonderful talking to you too. Thank you, sir.